Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Good afternoon to everybody, and I would like to thank each of you for coming, and thank you, Rabbi Shmuley, and for uh, Beit Midrashah for uh, making this event uh, possible. As mentioned, uh, my name is Basim Eid. I am a Palestinian. I born in the old city of Jerusalem, which we used to call it in that time the Jewish Quarter. I developed there for seven years, and... In June 66, 1966 means one year before the 67 war, the Jordanian government decided to remove 500 families from the Jewish quarter to a refugee camp, which called Shafat Refugee Camp, which is based in the north of Jerusalem, but it is in the Jerusalem border. And it is the only camp right now in the Jerusalem border. Now, why the Jordanians decided to remove 500 families to a camp, I have no idea. I asked Palestinians, I asked Jordanians, I asked even Jewish people, and no one has any explanation why the Jordanian government did so. So I developed and grown up in the refugee camp for 33 years. Only in 1999, I succeed to buy a small apartment outside the camp, but I still have six brothers who are living in the camp, which is every month I used to go over there and to visit them. I started my human rights career with an Israeli organization called B'Tselem. I used to be the main researcher for B'Tselem, traveling everywhere in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip, observing violations of human rights committed by the Israeli army in that time against the Palestinians. Then the Oslo Accord arrived. I remember during the day of the signing of the Oslo Agreement in the White House, a friend of mine called me and he asked me, where are you? I said, I am at home in front of the TV watching how Yitzhak Rabin is going to shake the hand of Yasser Arafat. Then my friend said, listen, looks like that beast is coming and no violations of human rights will be committed and you must have to find a new job. I said, probably I can be a very good a tour guide because as a person who traveled for seven and a half years to the old West Bank and the Gaza Strip, Probably that's the only job that I can be professional on it. But immediately I realized that the Palestinian Authority is going to be a new Arab dictator regime because the Palestinian leaders almost grown up and developed under the dictatorship from Syria to Sudan to Lebanon to Jordan to Algeria to Tunisia. And they almost learned exactly how these Arab dictators practicing the violations against their own people. And unfortunately, that's exactly what is happening these days, especially in the Gaza Strip. I became since five years ago as a political analyst, but mainly talking about the internal Palestinian politics and conflicts. You know, with Israel, we have only one conflict. But among ourselves, we have several conflicts. 
Among the Arab countries, we have several conflicts, which unfortunately we are unable right now even to solve any of those conflicts, even among ourselves. Look, since the Hamas took over the Gaza Strip in 2007, almost 10 years past, we are unable to reach any kind of peace between the Fatah and the Hamas or between the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. As uh, Rabbi Shmoli mentioned, he wants me to talk about the BDS. I believe that most of you, even mo all of you, almost heard about the BDS, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement. I think that over than 95% of the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank has no idea what is the BDS means. They never heard about it because the BDS is not exist neither in the West Bank nor in the Gaza Strip. These people are existing much more in the campuses in the United States and much more in Europe because only from Europe and the United States, these people can gain power and money. But from the Palestinians, who will give them money? I believe that the BDS almost knows very well. If they will appear one day in a refugee camp in Nablus, and they will call people to boycott Israel, people are going to throw shoes on them. Because if you want me to boycott Israel, what is the alternative here? I have a future. I have children. They want to survive. How they can survive if I am going to boycott Israel? I think that the BDS members are people who used to be jobless and they found jobs. And they know very well that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a very long-term conflict. So these people almost secure their own income at least for the coming 20 years. It's not going to be solved even during Trump period. Now, the BDS has a kind of strategy. The strategy of the BDS is not to reach any kind of peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. I think that the BDS right now almost said it very clearly that Israel has no right to exist. So the, strat the, the, the strategy of the BDS today is how to fight the existing of Israel, not the economy of Israel. Now, unfortunately, I remember when the BDS has been formed and created, I'm sure that some of you almost heard about the United Nations Conference in Durban in South Africa. During that conference of the United Nations, the BDS movement created. And since that time, these people are acting. They started from South Africa and then they succeed to spread out of South Africa to inside Europe and to inside the United States. Now, before the BDS, I remember after the 67 war, I think in 1971, during one of the meetings of the Arab League, the Arab League is the first one who called to boycott Israel. Before the BDS, the BDS wasn't born in 1971. They called to boycott for boycotting Israel. Now, the Arabs in that time has no relations with Israel at all. When they call to boycott Israel, it means that they call Europe to boycott Israel. And some other Asian countries, of course, including the United States. But the Arabs, leaders... After a few years, almost forgotten what they decided during 1991. And the first proof for that is President Sadat, when he decided to come to visit Israel in 1977. This is the, the fruit 
of the Arab League boycott towards Israel. That Sadat arrived to Israel, and everybody remember that historical moment. No doubt that it was a historical moment. I remember five years ago when the Soda Stream decided to remove from the West Bank to the south of Israel. What were the consequences here? 1,500 Palestinian workers lost their jobs. 1,500. Besides the 1,500 workers who lost their jobs, imagine how much of their children lost their medical insurance. What is really the BDS today contributing to those 1,500 workers? I met with some of these workers and I asked them, do you know who is standing behind kicking you from your job? They said no. I said the BDS. One of them looked to me and he said, Oh my God, show me the BDS, I want to kill him. He has no idea that the BDS is thousands of people. He thought BDS is one person. Today, these people, some of them, I met from time to time, and they are still jobless. When I asked them, why you didn't find a job? Then he said, I found a lot of jobs but they offered me $300 a month in Ramallah and in Bethlehem. While he used to have $1,500 at the Soda Street. So imagine to drop from $1,500 to $300. Where is the dignity here? Where is the dignity here? The BDS knows, as they used to say, the BDS used to say that Boycotting Israel it probably will have a short-term suffer, but a long-term benefit. Right now, we have a long-term suffer. This is what the BDS used to say all the time. Short-term suffer, long-term benefit. I think that the major problem here is the international community again and again, because the only one who should have to be blamed on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is the international community. Why? Because the international community today became a part of the conflict rather than a part of the solution. By funding financially the BDS, that means that you are managing the conflict and you are not interested in solving the conflict. This is one of the major problems. And sometimes I'm looking, you know, to Mr. Trump and his a lot of statements recently towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I don't believe that he will solve it. He couldn't solve it. Because the only one who can solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict will be only the Palestinians and the Israelis without any third party around the world. All the third parties around the world almost failed to find any solution between the Israelis and the Palestinians. The question is how Mr. Trump can start fighting against the BDS inside the United States. How Mr. Trump can put out a kind of legislations prohibiting supporting the BDS and financing the BDS. How Mr. Trump can put the BDS in their own place, which is among the anti-Semit people? That's the question. Can Mr. Trump do so? If he will do so, then I will appreciate his offer, his, his effort towards the solution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Towards the solution, but not the solution. This is exactly what we are demanding. I think that three months ago, 
there was a very interesting decision came out through the parliament in Switzerland that Switzerland parliament today prohibited any kind of support to the BDS. I wish all of Europe would run after such decision. I wish that the American legislators also will learn the message from the parliaments of Switzerland. I think that the BDS is causing a huge damage to the Palestinians. I think that the BDS activities today is how to continue the Israeli-Palestinian conflict rather than to solve it. And the BDS knows very well today that the major income of Israel is not from the soda stream, is not from the biscuits which comes from the, the, the settlements, it's not from the bagel, it's not from the soft drinks of, uh, of Schweppes. The main income of Israel today is high tech. So if the BDS want to boycott Israel, the first thing they should have to do to throw the computers from their houses outside. Then I will realize that the BDS really want to boycott Israel, but they will never do it. We have somebody living in a village north of Ramallah called Betrima. His name is Omar Barghouti, and he is one of the co-founders of the BDS. Six months ago, one of the Israeli leading newspapers, Yediot Ahronot, decided to make a profile on Omar Barghouti. They interviewed him. They talk, of course, about the BDS. And the writer of the article decided to go to his village and to ask people in his village what they know about Omar Barghouti. You know, the, all the people that the writer asked them about Omar Barghouti, what they remember on Omar Barghouti, that he was graduated from Tel Aviv University. But no one mentioned that Omar Barghouti is the co-founder of the BDS. And that's a real proof that the majority of the Palestinians has no idea about the BDS. If you will go today to the main markets, not only in the West Bank, but even in Gaza Strip, you will find in the early morning hundreds of thousands of boxes full of fruits and vegetables with the Hebrew writing. Is that came from Jordan or came from Egypt? It came from Israel and mainly from the settlements. Just a month ago, I went to one of the cities in Ramallah, near Ramallah, called Birzeit, where is the, one of the famous universities located there. And I passed by a supermarket. I saw on the front door of the supermarket a very big sticker. What written on the sticker? that this place is clean from any Israeli product. I said I must have to enter and to see. I went directly to the ice cream fridge, and I found that all the ice cream there is from Strauss. I took one, and I came to the owner, and they asked him, listen, do we, the Palestinians, have Strauss factory? Then he started laughing. I said, why you are laughing? When you are entering to your supermarket, have you ever saw this big sticker? Then he laughs again. And they said, why you are laughing? He said, because we, the Palestinians, like the Israelis, we love stickers. That was very interesting. We love stickers, like the Israelis. So I didn't see right now. I was in Bethlehem just 10 days ago. Big grocery there. He wrote stickers. Our shimenet from Strauss. Our milk from Tnuva. Our hummus from Tzabar. Our, our, it's all Israeli product and it's written in Arabic. Everybody can cross the street, can read it very clearly. Nobody 
throw stone on that store, by the way, while he is selling the Israeli product. Without the Israeli product, we couldn't survive. We couldn't survive. Who will provide us with food? Who will provide us with water, with electricity, with oil? Who will? Of course, no one. Look to Gaza today. Who is providing Gaza with the oil products? Only Israel. Even not Egypt. Even not Egypt. So I didn't see that the BDS is playing any effective role right now. And I didn't see any effects from the BDS on Israel today at all. Just three months ago, Israel signed an agreement with Jordan that Jordan is going to uh, export natural gas from Israel for 10 years in $15 billion. Where is the BDS? Where is the BDS? The BDS knows if they will make one demonstration in Jordan, they will be kept in jail forever. They know very well. So these people trying to use, let's say, unfortunately, the democracies inside Europe and inside the United States. And they will never, ever be able to appear in one Arab country. They know that very well. And they realized that only from Europe and the United States, they can gain power and money, but not from any other Arab country. So probably I will stop right now and giving you the opportunity to ask some questions and to make things a little bit clear. Yes. Yes. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Please. Yeah, I apologize. I dropped in a couple minutes late, so I didn't hear the, your introduction. I didn't hear Rabbi Shmuley's introduction of you. But do you um, speak on campuses, especially campuses that promote BDS? I was very impressed with your presentation. I really love to hear it. This isn't the audience that needs to hear it. Yeah. The audience that needs to hear it are the college kids who are promoting BDS on college campuses. I must have the question if I am appearing at campuses. I must have to tell you in the past two years, I appeared over than 120 different campuses around all of the United States. I am a person, thank you, I am a person who is working with a, with a very serious organization called CAMERA. CAMERA is very involved in the campuses in the United States. And it's not easy for me to appear at those campuses. Demonstrations took place against me Leaflets has been published against me. And beside, you know, the, the propaganda that these people try to create inside the lecture uh, uh, rooms, uh, I am a person who believes in what I am doing. And I am a person who knows exactly my own problem much more than any other outsider around the world. And I'm a person who knows what is benefiting us and what is harassing us. So these people makes no sense for me. I must have to tell you that two years ago, in 2015, I was invited to Australia and to New Zealand And I was invited by the University of Auckland for two different lectures. 
The BDS published a leaflet against me inside the university, and they call it that Oakland University shouldn't have to host Basem Eid. During the first lecture, I think that only around 40 people appeared. But after the leaflet has been published, 120 people came to the lecture because they are much more interesting why the BDS is against this guy. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes I am benefiting, you know, from these people. But of course, I am on campuses. Each tour I am doing in the United States, you know, I'm coming to the U.S. between six to seven times a year. And, uh, and every time I am invited to the campuses. Last March, I was three, uh, on three lectures at Berkeley University in San Francisco, which is a very, high, a very hot uh, spot, by the way. Yeah? Everybody warned me yeah, to go, not to go there, but uh, I think that it was very well organized over there, and I like it very much. See, in my opinion, in my opinion, the majority of the students who are attending my lecture are much more interesting to learn about the conflict rather than to oppose the lecture. But of course, when you have 70 students and three of the BDS, so the BDS knows exactly how to create their own propaganda. Three from 70, yeah? Three from 70. So sometimes, immediately, I recognize these people from their questions. And sometimes, I used to say that either to leave the room or we should have to ask the police to kick you out. Because, you know, the major important thing that I need security inside the campuses. And wherever I am going, I am not accepting, you know, the security of the university only by the police. If the police, real police, will appear, I will appear. If not, I'm not coming. And the whole organization knows that very well, and I think that that's also giving, you know, a much more impression that, that security almost under order when a policeman shown up inside the room. Great. Thank you. Please. Uh, basically, I have Let's start with the easiest one. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's start with the most problematic one. Yes. Um, you spoke earlier in your discussion about the authoritarianism of the Arab nations. Okay? And then you turned around halfway through the discussion and urged Mr. Trump to outlaw BDS in the United States. How do you rationalize? We are talking about a, a, a completely different things here. No. When I talk about the Arabs as a dictatorial regime, it is related to so many issues, not to the BDS. It's related much more to the ordinary people who are living under a such kind of regime. So it's not related to the fact that BDS... No, no, no. It's... No, 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 no. No, no, no. Excuse me. You, you, are, you are mixing between two different things here. You are. Yes. I think that I urge Mr. Trump to be much more serious towards the BDS, not towards anything else. I didn't ask, I didn't ask Mr. Trump to create a democratic regime for the American people because it's already created. I didn't ask Mr. Trump to stop violating the rights of the American people because the rights of the American people almost protected under the law, which does not exist in the Arab countries. And which would not allow the outlaw of a voluntary organization to the law, correct? This is, this, I don't want to interfere here in, in the American issues. I am not an expert on the American politics. I'm much more expert on the Palestinian politics. So if you have any question towards the Palestinians, please okay. put it on. Let me ask you a question. Uh, you say, on the one hand, the BDS is injuring politics. Is what? I'm sorry? 
is what? Yes, harassing them. Let has? I don't understand. I didn't understand your question. I said that the BDS harassing the Palestinians. How are they harassing? Uh, we talk. You join our our lecture since the beginning. The, yeah. What I said about the soda stream. That Palestinian workers, one thousand five hundred, lost their jobs. Come on. Excuse me. Excuse me. You are so far away from what we are talking about. Excuse me. Please. Yes, thank you. Uh, I understand that uh, Israel offered the Palestinians, what, 95% of the, what they call the West Bank, Camp David? This is. It was turned down. Is there anything that Israel could offer the Palestinians that they would accept that the Palestinians had to recognize Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state? You are talking about the Camp David negotiations in July 2000 between Yasser Arafat and Ehud Barak. We heard, according to the news, that Ehud Barak, yes, suggested something like 97, 98 percentage to withdraw from the occupied territories, which is Gaza and the West Bank. Now, why Arafat rejected, I have no idea. I have no idea. But what I know, that after a such good offer, let's say, Arafat decided to open the second intifada, which is almost started in September uh, 2000, two months exactly after the Oslo Accord. So my question is, is there anything that Israel could offer the Palestinians that they would accept? No, listen, right now, things became much more complicated. Because in 2005, Israel almost disengaged from Gaza. What's happened in Gaza? Gaza became hell after the Israelis' disengagement. It became a real hell right now. I am a person who used to say all the time that we, the Palestinians, almost destroyed in Gaza what remains from the Israeli occupation. We destroyed. The situation in Gaza before the Israeli disengagement was much better. And I think that people today can tell you that very clearly. But in the meantime, people are so scared to speak out on their own situation. People are not allowed today to say that there is a lack of electricity in Gaza. They are not allowed. Don't say it. Sounds like North Korea. It's even even worse. It's like Iran. Even worse than North Korea, in my opinion. And now the Israelis look exactly what's happening in Gaza and how after the Israeli disengagement, we are just receiving rockets on rockets on rockets. Imagine if Israel will do the same tomorrow morning in the West Bank. Imagine. No airport anymore. So, so this is what I used to say. I remember, you know, some in, in during Ehud Olmert's period. When Ehud Olmert starts saying sometimes that I am considering to withdraw from the Palestinian big cities like Ramallah, like Nablus. Then what was the statement of Hamas from Gaza? That if you will withdraw from Ramallah, Ramallah will be reoccupied by the Hamas. This is the real internal fight, unfortunately, between the Israelis and the Palestinians. But if the Israelis will do the same, like in Gaza, forget it forever. Forever. Please. A lot of the attraction of BDS um, to people who are trying to figure out um, has to do with the West Bank. Um, and that is, it's proposed that, um, that um, well, I heard an interview with uh, 
Bernie Sanders and Al Jazeera about BDS. And they asked Bernie Sanders, do you support BDS? And he says, no, I do not. And they say, and they, they came back at him and they said, well, the Palestinians tried negotiating and it didn't work. Oslo, they tried war and it didn't work. Second Intifada. What do you propose they can do to, to uh, end the occupation of the West Bank um, by Israel? Um, so I want to ask you that question. No, do I you, don't. No, I, I want to, it's a two-part question. One, do you think the occupation of the West Bank by Israel should be ended? And two, if, it, if you think it should be, knowing internal Palestinian politics, what do you think is something the Palestinians could do to help to end it? So if we are talking about a solution between the Israelis and the Palestinians, that means automatically that the occupation must have to be ended. Now, that's the big question now. Now, that's the big question. How we can end it, the Israeli occupation? How? Unfortunately, unfortunately, I think that the Oslo Agreement was probably the most attractive agreement in 93, which gave everybody a huge hope towards the Israeli-Palestinian solution. But unfortunately, Oslo agreement, there is no part among the agreement saying that a commission from the international community should have to control and to observe the implementation of the Oslo Accord. And this is why today we are blaming each other. The Palestinians said Israel never fulfilled the agreement. The Israelis said the Palestinians never ever fulfilled the agreement. That's the major problem. Do you think there's a will on the Palestinian side to do Oslo? And do you think there's a will on the Israeli side to do Oslo at this point? See, I, th I, I think that there was a very good will from the both sides in that time. In that time. Today, I'm not quite sure. Today, I am not quite sure. But in the meantime, I am, as a Palestinian, always blaming the Palestinian leadership. Because at least, and that's leading me more to the BDS, if the Palestinians failed in Oslo and failed in the negotiations, the Palestinians still surviving. But from the BDS the Palestinians will never be able to survive. That's a huge difference. So it's not an attractive thing to put an end for the survival of two million people in the West Bank. It's not attractive while you are calling two million people to boycott Israel without finding alternative to them. How they can survive. So I am not a person who is trying to focus on the solution. I am a person who is trying much more to focus on the way to the solution. And I used to say all the time that while you are talking about two-state solution, between the two states today, there is a huge, deep gap of hatred. How we, of hatred, how we can cross that gap. By crossing that gap, we need bridges of confidence. And that's exactly what the international community and Mr. Trump should have to focus in on, how we will find bridges of confidence between the Palestinians and the Israelis in terms to bring them together towards the two-state solution. But while you have such a huge, deep gap of hatred, I am not a person who is so optimistic towards the two-state solution right now. Please. You mentioned Omar Barghouti as one of the founders of the BDS. Yes. Is he related to Marwan Barghouti? Yeah, of course. This family, this is a big family called Barghouti. 
And this, this family has a kind of a competition among them who is going to make more. Competition. We have Marwan Barghouti, who is sitting in for five-year life imprisonment, five-year, uh, five, uh, a life imprisonment in, in the Israeli jail. We have Omar uh, Barghouti, who is the co-founder of the BDS. And we have Mustafa Barghouti, who is, this is another Barghouti, yeah? this, who, is, who is a legislative council member. And he is the one who is trying uh, more and more to create a violent demonstrations against the Israeli army. He is a legislative council. So three of them, three Bargutis, each belong to a different family. Yeah, but they are the main, the main tribe, but different families. Yeah. So there is a competition among the three of them who is going to achieve more. And who is going to be popular more? And who is going to get European donations more? This is the competition among themselves. So they are related, of course, to each other. Yes. Please. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, but with the reality that they don't understand BDS back in, in the West Bank and Gaza, how could there be a louder voice beyond yours yeah. to help spread the word that this is actually deleterious? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have to tell you that since 14 years ago, I moved from East Jerusalem to Jericho. And today I am living in Jericho, which is completely under the Palestinian Authority jurisdiction. <clears throat> Since that time until today, I never ever remember that anybody tried to knock my house door to condemn something or to protest against something. I have to tell you that in 1996, I was arrested by Yasser Arafat. And I was so lucky that I kept in jail only for 25 hours. Why? So short term. Because the only one who succeeded to release me in that time was the former U.S. Secretary Warren Christopher under Bill Clinton administration. He is the one who picked up the telephone to Arafat and he told Arafat, you have five minutes to release Basim Eid. And within two minutes, I was released. Now, a week after my release, in one of the occasions, I met with Mahmoud Abbas. You know, Mahmoud Abbas was nothing in that time, just nothing. And Mahmoud Abbas came to me, and he said, Basim, listen, when I heard about your arrest, I also called Arafat and I told Arafat, it's a big mistake to arrest you. So I hope that Abbas is still remembering that. Yeah. <laughs> now, from 2000 until 2014, I used to appear in a weekly live program on the Israeli TV in Arabic. Not in Hebrew, not in English, in Arabic. And each word I said it here in English, I repeated for thousands of times in Arabic. And people like it. I am traveling every day to the refugee camps. I am taking journalists. I am taking parliamentarians. I am taking students who are coming on visits to Israel for a week, for 10 days, I am taking them to the West Bank and putting them in touch directly with Palestinians in the refugee camp to express their own opinion. 
I think that the majority of the Palestinians totally agree with me, but they are so scared to speak loudly like me. I already paid the price for my impunity. I already paid the price for my impunity. So people are not allowing. But I am participating in a lot of meetings with Palestinians in Ramallah and in Nablus. And while we are sitting in a closed room, I think that people became more critical towards their own situation than myself. More critical. But people are really afraid to speak out. Now, look to Gaza today. There is a lack of electricity. What the Hamas is doing, that they are paying people money to go out and to demonstrate against the international community, against Abbas in Ramallah. They are paying money for that. But the people who participated in these demonstrations, when you will talk to them personally, they are accusing Hamas on the lack of electricity. Why to, why to accuse Hamas on the lack of electricity? Because the Hamas leadership every month using electricity in 8 million shekels. How much the, the Hamas leadership paying for that? Zero shekel. So the people who should have to, uh, to pay for the electricity which used by the Hamas leaders. But when the Hamas paying, you know, 20 shekels or 30 shekel for each, you will see hundreds of thousands demonstrating inside the Gaza Strip against the lack of the electricity. Why these people know that the main reason for the lack of electricity is the Hamas leadership, not anybody around the world. So people know exactly what I am talking about. And people knows exactly what they really want. Yeah, please. So, thank you for coming. Thank you. Um, so, how come you know you are very moderate and same <coughs> and same voice that I ever heard of the Palestinians? If you said that the majority of the I'm talking about the West Bank, not the not the Gaza, uh, the majority of There were some moderate uh, pal uh, Palestinian politicians, but I think the plan, the plan was, uh, the plan was more moderate. Let's consider him as a moderate. Yes. So how come we don't hear them? How come they don't raise up, rise up, and say, "Let's find a solution. Forget about Gaza." Let's you mean Dahlan? Not Dahlan, but other moderate that. Uh, yeah. Uh, there was, uh, I think, there was this, the other guy that was uh, under. Uh, Marwan Barghouti, not. not Barghouti. Uh, he was released, and then he was the security. Uh, okay, okay. No, I I didn't see right now, unfortunately, any moderate Palestinian politician. I couldn't say that Dahlan is a moderate or Marwan Barghouti who is a lot of Israelis, by the way, recommended to Netanyahu to release him. Because for them, he considered as the moderate Palestinian that we can easily reach peace deal with him. Israelis said, not Palestinians, yeah? I didn't see that the Palestinian Authority today allowing for any moderate people to raise their voice. Because that will be in a kind of introduction with what the Palestinian Authority is demanding. And the Palestinian Authority, they don't want to show the other side of the Palestinians. They want to be only the Palestinian Authority who is really representing the Palestinian people. So while the Palestinian Authority is not allowing 
for any moderate voices to raise up, you will never hear them. On the other side, See, but I told you, I was also arrested. But I get, you know, a little bit of impunity because the Americans' administration who, who released me in that time, they allowed me because they said, okay, this guy, we couldn't do anything with him. And he can go wherever he wants. But we don't want the second one to join him. Yeah? We don't want. Let's keep him a, a, a one man, one voice. On the other side, if we will come to Muhammad Dahlan, who is also considered, you know, by the Americans, by the Europeans, by the Gulf countries, as a moderate Palestinian, who might be able to reach a kind of a peace deal with Israel. You know, sometimes when I am mentioning the name of Muhammad Dahlan to some Palestinians, then the Palestinians said, Basim, listen, but Muhammad Dahlan is also corrupt. I said, you are right, he is corrupt. But personally, I prefer a young corrupt rather than an old corrupt. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is the only difference that I can make between them, that he is young and Abbas is old. I think that Dahlan today is he playing a very important role, not only in the West Bank, but also in the Gaza Strip. He has his own supporters. And most of the expectations said that he is the one who is going to replace Abbas, but only when Abbas pass away. And who knows when Abbas will pass away. You know, these people used to have a very long life, unfortunately. Yeah. Shimon Peres lived for 93 years. Maybe Abbas has another 10 years. He's right now 80, 83. We have to wait. We have to wait. So this is one of the major problems. And all the time I used to say that one of the major problems of the Palestinians is the lack of leadership. You know, Netanyahu, probably tomorrow, they will make elections in Israel, and the new leader, Yair Labid, will be the prime minister tomorrow morning. But within the Palestinian, if you will ask me what is the alternative to Abbas today, I will tell you Abbas. I will he tell you Abbas. He is already 12 years. 12 years. And he's still, you know, ready to go ahead with another 12 years. That's the problem. So this is the problem of the so-called moderate voices among the Palestinians. Yes, please. To whom? News. Yes. You know, I am a person. I am a person who used to say all the time. No Jews, no news. Means that the news only focusing on Jews. So no Jews, no news. Uh, I am very upset on the media. I used to be, you know, a media man. I appeared in, in most of the most important documentaries and programs around the world. But I didn't see that the media, let's say since probably eight years ago, is interesting in any moderate voices towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I remember in 2014, during the war in Gaza, I wrote an article and I decided, of course, that I was very critical to the Hamas in that time. And I sent the article via email to the Obed, to the New York Times. Immediately, I received an automatic answer 
that after, you know, hundreds of thousands of obeyed we are receiving daily, uh, it will take us time to select these articles, and within three days, you will hear from us. I sent it on the 5th of August, 2014. What is today's date? I'm still waiting, by the way. Because it looks like that the three days at the New York Times is three different centuries. <laughs> so unfortunately, the media is not interesting. See, there is a problem. There is a problem with the, with the, with the education system and with the curriculum. In Gaza today, we have 64% of the total inhabitants in Gaza are refugees. <coughs> refugees. Living in refugee camps. How many did you say? 64 64% of the total population. You can come closer to me. You will hear me much better, no? Please. In Gaza today, we have 64% from the total population are refugees living in a refugee camp. In the West Bank, we have 54% of the total population are refugees and living in refugee camps. In Gaza today, we have eight different refugee camps. In the West Bank, we have 12 different refugee camps. These camps are under the responsibility of what we call UNRWA, the UN Works and Relief Agency which is a part of the United Nations. <clears throat> the curriculum of UNRWA is horrible. I read it. I met with a lot of students in the UNRWA schools, not only in the West Bank, but also in Jordan. And when a student who is six, seven, eight years standing in front of the camera, saying that he wants to commit a suicide, that he wants to liberate his land, that he wants to trash the Jews to the sea. And when I asked him, who told you, who taught you that? He said, this is what they are teaching us in the school. Now, this is UNRWA. Now, who is financing UNRWA? Europe and the United States. What is the yearly budget of UNRWA? It's $1.6 billion a year. How much the United States donating yearly to UNRWA? $400 million. I spoke in the last three years over than 15 times at the Capitol Hill towards the curriculum of UNRWA. And each representative said, okay, we are going to take this case very seriously and we are going to deal with it. What they did, just nothing. So I want to urge you, when you are meeting with your own representatives, to raise this issue and to find out how we can cut the funding of UNRWA if UNRWA is not going to reform its own curriculum. It's up to you rather than it is up to the Palestinians because I am not, I never donated one dollar to UNRWA in my life. But some of your money, I'm quite sure it's going there.
UNRWA, UNWNRA, United Nation Works and Relief Agency. UNRWA, yes. Great. Yeah, we get invited to be on the radio. To be invited? To be on the radio to talk about this. When? Have you ever been invited? Yeah, I was invited by some radios. I don't remember the names of those radios, yeah. Be interested? But it wasn't on the... I, I have no problem. I have no problem. Very good. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.